Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 133. This week, we talk with Chris Wilcox about Azure Notebooks, TypeScript 2.1 with down-level async is finally here, and is everyone throwing away their MacBook Pro for a Surface Book? This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Aspose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DOCX, XSLX, PPT, PDF, MSG, MPP, image formats, and many more. This week, we have Chris Wilcox. He is a developer on Azure Notebooks. His team at Microsoft also ships the Python tools for Visual Studio and the Azure SDK for Python. How's it going? Good. And Carl, why do you have a picture of some decapitated head here in the notes? It's not a decapitated (laughs) head. It's actually a glass figurine uh, ninja cat. Okay. Uh, I got this as a gift from the WinDev team. Uh, 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 Many of you know that I'm a Microsoft MVP for Windows development. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we went out there, they had a little event where they were hoping to give us all these figurines there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they didn't, so they mailed them out, and I just got mine, and it's really cool. And I know uh, a lot of people like things, all things Ninja Cat, so I thought I'd give it a, a little show on the camera because okay. it's pretty cool. So if you're watching the video, you can see that. Otherwise, go and look at uh, – actually, I guess you'll put it in the show notes. So if somebody, somebody put it in the show really notes. wants to see – the uh, decapitated cat head. Uh, they can do that. <laughs> it, it, it's, not, it's not that bad, Jason. Oh, Carl's so mad at me now. Okay, so what do we have for the exposed comment of the week? Uh, this is actually a pretty good one from L- Phil Lalonde. Uh, we got it on our website. He commented back on the episode that we had about uh, Azure Relay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, I really enjoyed the episode. I'm personally using queues, topics, and event hubs. I like all of them. When choosing between service bus queues and topics, what are the drawbacks of any of using a topic with a single subscription instead of a queue? The uh, This essentially provides queue-like behavior and opens up possibility to add new components that uh, we would want uh, further down the road. Mm-hmm. One drawback is uh, if you really wanted to enforce queue-like behavior, then going with a queue from the start will be safer. Other than that, are there any performance characteristics be- that are different between service bus queues and topics? And John actually got back to him um, and actually pointed out a blog post that answered it. So if you really want to catch the rest of the conversation, head out to the show notes for that episode and uh, check it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the times, if you do have a question uh, about uh, something that happens on a show, uh, putting a, a question out on our our show notes actually is a good spot to, uh, to uh, get a hold of whoever we talked to that week. Yep. Like I emailed, I emailed John and said, "Hey, there's a comment out there," and then he was nice enough to come back and and answer. So that that was a really good question because, yeah, in, in general, like the only difference between a queue and a topic is like essentially how many receivers you can have. So the, of course, that question comes up: Why do both of those things exist? Um, and I'm guessing the performance is probably you know next to zero. But you know, John, uh, I think is probably a little bit more pedantic. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So if you want to get mentioned on the show like Phil, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com or comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We really like those five-star iTunes reviews. Yeah, we have a lot of them out there now, so thank you guys so much for for doing that for us. And we're going to start looking at the reviews from other countries because we found that uh, it only shows the ones in the U.S., and I actually have a trick now, I think, to see uh, to pull all the comments from those other um from the, the iTunes from other countries. So we'll, we'll, we're going to get on that. Okay, so what do we got in the news here? Dutch police to start using Microsoft HoloLens and headset. This is very futuristic. Yeah, this is really cool because a lot of a lot of people think that the HoloLens is interesting, mm-hmm. but they don't really you know see a lot of practical uses of right. it. So uh, this was an article showing how the Dutch police, they've been in, in early prototypes. So they, they haven't fully built this out yet, but this is you know, some scenarios that they're looking to solve. So one is when they're actually investigating a crime scene to be able to use HoloLens to be able to like, uh, tag uh, the area virtually with all sorts of different notes and stuff and files so that the they can uh, actually walk around the site and see what other officers have, uh, you know, left as clues for them, uh, which is actually kind of a cool, uh, you know, way to interact with a crime scene. Yeah. And then uh, another thing that they brushed on uh, as well is being able to optimize routes when they're heading towards emergencies. If you're wearing a HoloLens, it could give you a, a more advanced uh, GPS uh, capabilities. That's kind of interesting. I like the crime scene idea because I'm I'm just kind of curious if they do this now, if they have some kind of 3D mapping of a crime scene. I mean, it's obviously way more sophisticated than than like a chalk outline. But imagine being able to go back and actually look at the 3D model of the of the crime scene and, and not just a whole but, bunch of photos. They also mentioned being able to replay those crime scenes with the notes for jury. So okay. That is, oh wow. That is something you know that they're looking forward long term. Yeah, that's really really cool. Okay. And then uh, sort of shifting gears here, TypeScript 2.1 is announced and I'm obviously pretty excited about this. I haven't, I haven't done any TypeScript stuff in, I don't know, I guess a couple months at this point. Uh, So I got to get back into it. Uh, But finally the async functions have uh, arrived. Um, For real? Yeah, for real this time. And uh, targeting ES3 and ES5 without using any other tools. Um... Which actually, that should work. You know what? I should have checked. I think that should work in a browser now. Because um, originally, like their first implementation of it, I think only worked in Node. And it must have been because of the, I think it was because of the ECMAScript targeting. They couldn't, they couldn't target the older versions of ECMAScript and put in the new functionality. Uh, but that feature has arrived. Um, what else do they have in here? Um, they have some stuff in here for... Uh, for doing like, um, they call it object rest and spread, but there's a couple of cool things in here, like making a, a shallow copy of an object. Um, and then, and then actually like merging a whole bunch of, um, objects together, which is, um, fairly common in, in a dynamic language like JavaScript, where you have like properties here, you have properties in this other object and you can merge those things together. Um, what do we, what else we have here? Probably nothing else that I have to really go into, but we'll have, um, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, obviously, to this post, uh, which has a whole bunch of really great code examples. And uh, yeah, this is great. I love seeing where TypeScript is going because they just it's awesome that they without without iterating JavaScript itself, they can just keep adding awesome functionality to it and making making the language uh, better and better. And then finally, uh, and I want to get your take on this, Carl, was Mac users switching to Surface more than ever after new Mac MacBook Pro disappointment. 
And disappointment is in quotes for some reason, uh, probably because well, I, I, they've been selling a ton yeah, of them. <laughs> yeah, the the key source for this was a Microsoft statement, so I think that's why you know part okay, of that so was in, in in quotes. But I, I I think that both of these statements can be true. I mean, mm-hmm. you can have the best selling MacBook ever, as well as more people trading in MacBooks for a competitor than ever. Um, Absolutely, uh, especially as each one of those segments grows. So. Obviously, the old Macs have been around long enough where there's going to be a good chunk of people itching to upgrade. Yeah, uh, that happens with with a lot of those. You know, I know a lot of people itching to upgrade to the next version of Surface. Even so, when those new products come out, you're going to see that big jump. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, when you don't get the thing that you want, and I think there were a lot of people not getting what they wanted with this uh, new MacBook. Uh, you're going to see people eyeing up the competition. Yeah, I'm one of them. I mean, I, I, I really want to love this new this new MacBook. Um, I mean, I love that it's thinner and lighter. I'm hearing about battery issues now. I'm not a fan of the keyboard, the touch bar. I still I, I just I don't know how how I could potentially use that to, to make myself more productive. So to me, it is it is a disappointment. The only thing I would like out of it is that faster CPU. Um, but man, the prices also went up. So I'm, I'm just disappointed and to be clear, I, you know, I know I'm a Microsoft employee, but, um, I'm also, I guess a hardware junkie first. Right. And, and, and we're actually, you know, I'm recording this on, on a Mac pro that I bought a while back and, um, you know, so I, I, I appreciate nice hardware, but I'm, I am really disappointed what they've done now on the surface book front, man, people are any kind of comments on this particular article are, are pretty mean. They're, they're really mean to this device. Like you'll get the people that have actually touched it and they're like, wow, this is a beautiful device. I really like it. Uh, but you can tell like people that, you know, have never even looked at this thing. They're they're They just make these, these snarky comments like, Oh, well, you know, they sold one and, and now they sold a second or they sold two this year. So, you know, sales are, are way up. And it's like, oh, come on, guys. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's a little bit ridiculous, especially considering I thought that there was some kind of, um, I, I thought, wasn't there, I don't know if it was speculation or if Microsoft made some kind of statement because, you know, I don't work in that group, but I thought, you know, Surface had sold like a billion dollars worth of devices in one year. D- didn't you hear something like that? Yeah, I think it may have been a quarter. Yeah, in a quarter. Yeah, I don't know. Either way, like, yeah. we're, we're talking billion type numbers. And then people are joking that they've sold, you know, 10 of these things, um, which is absurd. I can't believe well, that we, this article is on nine to five Mac.com. It is. So we ha- you do biased. have to take that part with, well, and, and we're talking l- about Macs on, on a, on a Microsoft show. So, you know, whatever, T- take everything we say with a, with a grain of salt, but I will say, um, you know, whenever I'm traveling at what's in, inter- there's a couple observations, whenever I'm traveling, um, one is that like. Every business traveler I see, like, God, it's, I would, I would wager that it's got to be way above 90% has an iPhone. And, um, as far as laptops, it's usually windows. Um, and I'm actually starting to, you know, I started probably about a year ago, started seeing some surface devices and now I'm starting to see a lot of surface books. Um, they, I, I think they're, they're, they're really, I think people, um, are really starting to use them. And I actually overheard a conversation just, uh, I think it was like two weeks ago where a guy was talking about his surface book to somebody else. And I was of course listening in, he's like, Oh, I really like this machine. And this is just some random non Microsoft person. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could, I could see people being perturbed by what Apple is doing, um, and basically removing all the ports with, with, uh, um, now they have just USB-C. Um, I'd like to see a one USB-C port on the, the surface book, 
but the Surface Book has a lot of great ports on it, including that SD card reader and Display Port and a couple of USB ports. And um, I, I think they're I think they're doing all the right things. I really like the uh, the hardware on my on my Surface Book. I wouldn't mind if they actually would to would fuse the tablet with the keyboard though and just make it one device. I would actually be perfectly fine with that. Um, it's pretty rare that I pop those things apart. So. So Chris, you've been pretty quiet. Any comments? Yeah, I mean, the uh, it's actually funny. I had a talk uh, this weekend about the new MacBook, and the big complaint still uh, from a dev is the missing escape key is the biggest mistake yeah. of all time. So I have a bunch of friends who work in a Mac shop uh, and do Ruby work, and they're, they were complaining about it. The reason I was with them is at a Christmas party, mm-hmm. and it was nothing but complaints about, I, I don't know why I want a touch bar. I have a phone for that, but I yeah. really am going to miss this escape key. Uh, and among Windows devs, it's maybe a little less a case, but if you're a Vim user, the escape key is like getting hit two right. or three times a minute, and now there's no key, and uh, and we'll see if it actually affects anything in terms yeah. of their numbers. But it's definitely definitely being talked about, and uh, that that's a little unusual, right? Uh, yeah. So do, do those the developers that you're talking about? Do they have any interest in them coming over to Surface Book? I mean, what do they think? Uh, so that's actually kind of interesting. Uh, so the people I know, they work at a, at a small startup, and they've started using Surface Books, uh, particularly yeah. their PM team and their designers, uh, as well as some of their devs. Uh, it's hard for them. Ruby is not exactly the most Windows-friendly uh, language. Yeah. Uh, it's very popular in the Linux and Mac space, and pretty much everyone is using sort of a tool chain over there. Uh, but I am seeing people wanting that hardware. Uh, the price point's still pretty hard uh, for mm-hmm. them, which is funny to me because they buy MacBooks, which are roughly the same price point. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm definitely starting to see more people using it. Uh, yeah. Mac is getting, uh, they're still getting plenty of buy-in from what I've seen to in universities um, and at sort of the open source conferences I attend. But uh, we are getting an odd amount of penetration. It started with the Surface Book, not really the first Surface, but yeah. uh, the new devices, it's it's pretty good, right? Uh, like yeah. my biggest complaint about it is actually the res is too good. Uh, <laughs> it's, it is so high res that it does a, it has a hard time with like remote desktop and that sort of stuff yeah. because it can fit so much on the screen. I can hardly read it. Uh, so maybe that's, maybe that's my personal eyesight, but I want like, I want less pixels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like whenever you see high definition now, like it's ruined you for standard definition too. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that's the problem that I have is, is switching back and forth, but you know, I've, a 4k monitor here but then i go to like a non-high dpi display and i'm just like oh it, it burns it burns anyway okay um so that's probably all we need to say about that um so let's talk about um azure notebooks which was just a surprise because I, I i was i was on hacker news actually and all of a sudden i see this thing about azure jupiter net notebooks and i'm like what what the heck is this? And I'm like reading, I'm like, okay, I still don't get what it is. And then I had to go look at what Jupiter notebooks was. Cause I hadn't seen that before. Um, so, but then I started looking into it. I'm like, okay, this is, this is really, really cool. So I guess, first of all, let, let's talk about your team and then we'll, then we'll talk about the actual um, service that you guys are working on. But I, you had mentioned before the show that your, your team does more than just Azure notebook. So what does your team do? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so just to tie in quick too, the, the Hacker News article you found is a surprise test too. Uh, 
uh, last week, at the beginning of the week, out of nowhere, our, uh, our PM starts messaging me. It's super early in the morning. and Like, we're on Hacker News, and people are asking all sorts of questions. Could anyone get over there and answer any of them? And we're like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, like, usually when things hit Hacker News, um, I don't think it's a secret. Like, most of the time, one of us is so excited. We're like, I'm going to go put this over there, and people will love to hear about it. Yeah. And to have someone else put it up there, it's really great for us, right? It's, it's yeah. really cool to see someone that's not one of the few of us working on the product get excited about it, but to have this, this organic excitement and all these questions come in. Uh, and your stuff problem. didn't go down, which is no, great. no, it didn't. It was surprisingly healthy. Um, yeah. We've worked really hard on that. Uh, it's, a, it's a young product, so we expect some issues. But yeah. yeah, our team, our team actually didn't start on this Azure Notebooks thing. So the team I work on at Microsoft has been here uh, for a little while, uh, five plus years, working mostly on open source projects. So uh, our sort of Far back story is for those of you that remember Iron Python and Iron Ruby. Mm-hmm. Uh, members of that team before that sort of disappeared at Microsoft. So Iron Python's still real, but uh, it's part of the community. We don't actually own it anymore. So it's entirely driven by the open source community. Uh, members of that team ended up forming the team I'm in today. Uh, and we made things like Python tools for Visual Studio. So Python tools for Visual Studio is what allows you to code Python in Visual Studio. That sounds kind of like I'm echoing myself, but it gives you IntelliSense, it gives you debugging, mixed mode debugging, uh, remote debugging between Linux uh, and your desktop OS, uh, and a lot of other really cool features. Uh, That's where we started, and from there we branched out and did a few other things, including Node Tools for Visual Studio, uh, which has since been owned uh, by the TypeScript team now. Uh, They were the the better owners of that. We started it and sort of gave it legs, and now they're going to make it run. Uh, our tools for Visual Studio, which we still own right now. Uh, we work a lot with data scientists, and so we realized R was being underserved uh, by Visual Studio, and we could fix that. Uh, and then we also picked up Azure Notebooks. And so Azure Notebooks started as an idea uh, within the Azure Data Science Group, uh, what's called the data group at Microsoft, that owns uh, mach- the Machine Learning Studio, which is studio.azuremail.net, uh, as well as things like SQL. And they started making this as a tool to use with the, the studio itself, so in studio.azureml.net, because they have this uh, sort of drag and drop boxes and lines flow for machine learning. But people also wanted a tool that let them get access to programming languages. And so we started working on this as sort of a thing inside the studio. And then said, but what about people that aren't just data scientists? People that aren't going to find this boxes and lines thing exciting, uh, who maybe are university students, uh, maybe they're enterprises. Could we provide sort of a standalone service based on the same uh, IP? And that's how Azure Notebooks became. And so we made notebooks at azure.com, which is pretty much the same code that's running within the studio uh, as a playground for people, as a place for education to work, uh, and hopefully eventually things like enterprises to use internally for their data science workloads. Uh, And obviously there's a lot of room to grow yet. The service has been going for a little over a year, uh, but it's it's relatively young yet. One of the questions that I had was, um, this is something that we always like to ask, is the the scenarios that you had in mind. I mean, so you you mentioned like enabling all these, you know, all these other audiences to be able to, to, to use, you know, write code within there. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, like what, what specific scenarios you had in mind? What did you think people would create with this? Sure. So the way we started uh, thinking about this was that there were sort of two big crowds that we thought Jupyter Notebooks would be uh, used most by. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is data scientists uh, and, and just scientists really in general. So Jupyter uh, provides a nice cell by cell ability to code uh, 
our PM is coined the phrase, it's a REPL on steroids. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for those those sort of uh, in tune with this REPL is a read execution print loop. Uh, it's an easy way to sort of re-execute cells of code uh, and store the result. And so because Jupyter does this, it fits really well with uh, re-executable science and the idea that you need to have a, an experiment that's easily reproduced by other people. Jupyter makes that rather straightforward uh, because of the way it sort of lines up and you have these step-by-steps with individual outputs. And so that, that's one sort of community that we could see this being used with. But it turns out it also works really well for education because of this cell-by-cell uh, -cell nature and the ability to do markdown in line. Uh, it's a good way to sort of do lecture material mm -hmm. or um, share without an actual lecturer. So a lot of times people will have like a, you have a blog about code, right? And in line they'll put, they'll have their HTML and then they'll have a blog of uh, like a little blob of code and then they'll have some more HTML and another blob of code, but you can't execute that code. You can't play with that code. You just have to trust that it works. And if it's like a lot of the blogs I've looked at, it's actually incomplete because there was some boilerplate they didn't really want to show you. And so if you just like read the blog uh, sort of mindlessly, you'll, you'll never repeat what they did. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about Jupyter is you can do what they meant to do, which is give someone instructions on, on how to do something where they can run that thing and actually get the result. And so it's, it's a really powerful tool for that too. And so like those are the two biggest markets we're seeing, uh, and we're, we're seeing some uptake in them with, with a variety of different customers. But pretty much primarily right now is professional data science and sort of the educational crowd. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering if we should help people visualize this thing. So, yeah. um, you know, because, uh, you know, we're, we're primarily audio only. But I mean, if you kind of picture what this thing looks like, it's a notebook where you're where you are writing text and then you are literally writing, you know, code like you'll write a code block and it actually executes like right there on the page. Right. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about that. No, about, that's 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 it. Right. It's uh, yeah. It's the way I tend to think about it for other products too. If you've used something like Mathematica, it's very much in the same same realm. And so uh, it is it is lines separated by cells, mm -hmm. uh, like a notebook, and you can execute any one of them. It stores the result of any execution. You can use it in further executions. Uh, it allows you to put graphics, images. You can do videos uh, in line as well. You can do markdown, and so it's really sort of this rich text editor with the ability to inline code with it, that's that's executable. So what are some of the more interesting things that you've seen done with this already? Sure, yeah, they, uh, there's a few cool things that I, I can think about. So the first thing we got was LIGO, which maybe at this point is sort of uh, a little bit older, but the uh, researchers doing work on gravitational waves, uh, when we first started the survey, or this service, excuse me, uh, came to us and brought us some notebooks uh, with their gravitational waves. And they started publishing these on their website. And uh, what, what happened is people took these IPython notebooks, uh, or Jupyter notebooks, uh, the names have changed over time. It's now called Jupyter, it used to be called IPython. Mm. Uh, but they brought these Jupyter notebooks to us, and they started running them, and people were uh, sort of investigating this gravitational wave data sets uh, on our service. And said, it's, it's a little old now, but that was the coolest thing for me I mean, when that first <laughs> happened was like, oh, like actual science is happening on the service I'm doing. It's no longer just like the toy stuff I've been playing with. And uh, I like to joke that like in data science, the, the, over, uh, the overdone experiment is sepalin petal length of irises, right? And so I'm not just taking this data set that allows me to put an iris in and tell you what subspecies it is, mm -hmm. like actual science that people don't already know the result of. <laughs> <laughs> and That's so cool. it was cool. Um, 
More recently, uh, there's a thing called CNTK that Microsoft made. They yeah. recently renamed it to the Cognitive Toolkit, uh, and they brought their notebooks to us as well for introductions. And they've been oh, um, that's cool. They, yeah, they've really been on the speaking tour lately. So in the past few weeks, there have been a lot of conferences where they've used our service, and we can see uh, people logging on to look into the CNTK stuff on our service. Uh, the the biggest thing that we've learned from that is that we thought we provided plenty of horsepower, but it's surprising. Uh, how much you can do with the cognitive toolkit if you have enough power. <laughs> yeah, um, you can, you can pretty, it'll pretty much eat up whatever CPU you throw at it if you do certain things. That's, that's what we found. Yeah. I mean, the, VMs, <laughs> the VMs we were letting people play on are rather big. And then they're like, can we get something faster? And we're like, really? Uh, okay, cool. Um, yeah. Uh, except like at that point, that's where the, the money sort of, sort of hits things. Right. And so that's when I have to start talking to my boss and my boss's boss about like, so, um, Where's, where's the money for me to give compute to all these people? Yeah. Uh, so those, those are the harder conversations. But yeah, no, it was really cool. Like the, the thing that came out of it was, you know, can we get GPU accelerated machines? Is there a way to have like a checkbox saying I need GPU acceleration? Uh, which we've never really thought of uh, being a thing that people would want. And so uh, that's really the best thing about these workloads, right? Is that once you get these customers doing different things, uh, they do things we never expected. And so uh, we can learn a lot and sort of grow our service. And so we've We've had those two things. They've been, they've been very useful for sort of learning what it is yeah. our service is really going to need to do. That would be cool using it for a presentation. Aspose offers a powerful set of file management APIs with which developers can create applications, which can create, open, edit, and save the majority of popular business file formats. Their product range supports a multitude of file formats, including Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents, OneNote, Outlook, Project, Visio files, popular image formats, and many others. Aspose produces APIs for .NET, Java, and the cloud, which can be utilized in almost any modern language available today. Visit www.aspose.com for a free 30-day no-limitations trial. And if you get stuck, message the friendly support team for help. All technical support is offered free of charge. Remember, if you're a lucky winner, you will receive a free developer small business license for Aspose.Words for .NET, a powerful toolkit to work with Word documents in your applications. Is there some way I can embed this? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm thinking the, the this whole format where you alternate between like English and then like a code language is frequently how I would structure like a blog post, uh, which now I could just do in Azure Notebook. Um, is there some way then I could like take that and put that in my blog or do I just link them to that? Like, have you given any thought to that? Yeah, so uh, I've I've done a few blogs. We have a we have like a Python uh, and Microsoft blog for our team that we started doing, and most of the things I end up doing are like weird little experiments I've run. And so you know, I, I'll look at I look at data. Like uh, one of the one of the more popular things was looking at Python two versus Python three, which is uh, mostly a religious debate at this point. Uh, but I, I did some information gathering on, on downloads and package usage to try to see what are the actual trends, and I had a Python. Uh, notebook uh, in Jupyter that I hosted on Azure Notebooks that showed how this data played out, showed you some graphics, showed mm -hmm. you sort of how it was working over time, and some estimates about what's this going to look like next year based on the trends we're seeing. And what I did is uh, Jupyter Notebooks can be exported as HTML, and so I exported it to HTML. I put that in our blog engine, which is uh, WordPress-based, and uh, and then I put a link at the top of the bottom that said, go start this notebook. And so I just made like a, a little button oh, okay. that sent you over to Azure Notebooks. Uh, to address your question, then, like how I've worked around it, because I'm like, that that works, but it's like far <laughs> from the one-click experience that I want to tell people to go do. Yeah. 
uh, we have looked at runnable documentation. Uh, and Microsoft's doing some other really cool things with that right now. So like OneNote has a, has a plugin, um, and I'm, I'm spacing right now on the name of it, but there's a third party that makes a runnable uh, code execution engine that they plugged into their stuff. So you can now run code inside your OneNote notebooks, uh, which is kind of cool. And uh, we apologize for overloading the, the notebooks name at Microsoft, right? Because now we have OneNote <laughs> notebooks and Jupyter notebooks. Yeah. They did that, and that's, uh, that's there. But we're thinking pretty much exactly what you are, right? Like, how could I have my, uh, just, just to sort of talk about at Microsoft, right? Blogs.msdn.com. We have all these people writing content all the time. Mm-hmm. Could we be the people to help provide them? Uh, the box that lets them run code via C-sharp or F-sharp or uh, Python? And the answer is yes, uh, with infinite people and infinite resources. Uh, <laughs> so we've, we've talked about it. Uh, it's just, it's one of those things that we, at this time, haven't really put the put the, uh, the calories into as a team okay. uh, because we've been more concerned just making Azure notebooks. Yeah. <laughs> but it's definitely something we're interested in. We've had a lot of talks as devs about sort of how would we do that, but I said it just hasn't really gotten the spotlight yeah i'd love to be able to embed that somehow so i have a post and then i just have a tag that that points to the notebook and then you kind of just fill in the the contents for me but of course you know that would never be as easy as what i'm saying (laughs) yeah yeah no i mean i we have a lot of time spent with our our pms and uh so that's that's kind of how it works our team is a little atypical at microsoft that the devs report to the pm uh group and so uh, that sort of manifests itself in uh us defending ourselves against the onslaught of awesome, really cool work that we all wish we could do and yeah. the trap that that is, right? Like as a dev, yeah. when someone prevents you with three really cool problems, you have a hard time being like, but I don't have time. And so instead you, you just do everything yeah. and, then, and then wonder why you're never getting anything done. Yeah. <laughs> so you're always doing the next cool thing. And so, uh, yeah, I said an infinite, in an infinite world, we would love to love to do it. It's just, yeah, we just have my people. I wonder if I, I could probably just put it like in an iframe or something. Yeah, you can do that. Um, there's yeah. iframe hosting, but uh, iframes are kind of the devil. And so yeah. I usually also don't recommend that. Um, and there's there's some some cool approaches. Uh, what is nice is Jupyter is an open source uh, platform. And so their code's all in GitHub. Uh, and there are extensions already to sort of do uh, neat things with it. None of them that embed it in your website, uh, but things that uh, allow you to do like slideshows, for instance, with it. Or like I said, you can export it to HTML. Um, so even something as simple as you write it in, in a Jupyter notebook and just your blog post actually is the notebook just as HTML. Mm-hmm. And like you could you could actually plug into the HTML renderer to make it anytime they clicked a code cell, it actually launched an Azure notebook, for instance, okay. if they wanted to try to edit something. Yeah, uh, yeah but yeah, there's there's a lot of different routes to it. But so a lot of those to me feel like workarounds. Like what I really want is what you're talking about too, is like I'm on this blog post and I, I ran this code and now I want to try to edit it quick and just rerun it again without ever leaving the blog. Exactly. Uh, it's like, well, that code is close to what I want, but I, I want to change some things. You do it, you actually run it on the site and they're like, okay, that's what I want, and then copy it out of there. Um I like I like that idea. Um, and then I'm kind of curious, like where, where do these notebooks like exist and where's the data stored and can I download them? Like what, what's, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we have a, uh, we have a storage system of our own. It's all stored. Uh, probably no surprise here. It's all in Azure, mm-hmm. uh, but we take care of the storage. Uh, you can download them, um, on any of the notebook, uh, libraries, uh, library being a collection of these notebooks. Uh, it's sort of a project or a workspace. Uh, they're all sort of communicating the same idea, but you can download the library, you can download a notebook, uh, or you can just leave it with us and use it use it locally. It turns out uh, 
it's it's much easier for you to get things out of our system than into our system. That's one of the feedbacks we've we've had. We were really concerned that if we didn't let people get their stuff out, they'd accuse us of making this walled garden and trying to close them in and not let them have sort of their open science. And we're like, okay, so we'll make sure. We made it really easy to download the notebooks and download everything as a zip. And then they're like, but how do I how do I upload stuff? And we're like, yeah, we didn't make that as easy. <laughs> we made it much easier to get stuff yeah. out of our system. Which, yeah, we're trying. We uh, were trying to be nice to the users, and now the users are asking for more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I mean, we're I mean we're kind of happy about that, but at the same time, yeah. it was kind of a funny learning experience. And uh, in the past few weeks, we've even improved that. Uh, so things like the hacker news stories really help you uh, get a lot of feedback quickly, and yeah. uh, then we try to act on it quickly too if we can. But cool. Yeah, so how, how do I bring data into this? Uh, can I even connect stuff like a database to it? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few different ways to bring data in. So people already have Azure Notebooks, uh, or not, excuse me, I'm sorry, Jupyter Notebooks, uh, and they bring them to the Azure Notebooks platform. Uh, it's not that hard to get those on there. So all you have to do is once you're on the Azure Notebooks site uh, and you've made a library, there's an Add Notebooks button. And so that that's pretty easy. The complicated thing is how do you get data into it. And so if you have like a SQL database, pretty simple. Python and R both have a lot of SQL libraries to work with, and you're going to work with them very much in the way you would have locally. Uh, it's more complicated when you have like really big CSV files and that sort of thing where you have this sort of private data hosted in some random place. Uh, and like to, to give an idea of feedback, it turns out Dropbox uh, and OneDrive and pretty much all free file shares are not in the habit of making it easy for you to download your data without like looking at their site. Uh, so if you just wanted to like get a link to Dropbox, I know you've probably done this in your browser before, uh, yeah, but so it you're actually like does. A, like a direct link to the actual file? Yeah, and like when you go to Dropbox, you, you've probably never noticed this, right? But they, they give you give a preview you thing. A yeah. link. Yeah, but the link they give you is actually out of preview. It's not to the file. Yeah, and exactly. So, uh, we've had users be like, can you can you give me a script to, to get to Dropbox? And I'm like, well, we, we can, but it's very clear they don't want us to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we're like, well, you download it yourself and then upload it yourself. And so that's, that's sort of the bringing the data in part that's hard, right, is that uh, it's easy if you're in Azure Storage. We have samples of how to get it from Azure Storage if you're in SQL, but it's harder for things like your one terabyte random CSV file with your proprietary, you know, customer data, um, or you know, even research sample. And so uh, we've done some things to help with that, but that's that's probably if I could say if there's an area for improvement, that's it. Yeah, is improving our ingest of that kind of data. Yeah. So what what languages are supporting this? I know you've been mentioning Python and R. Is that it? Yes. So my team my team is pretty Python focused. Uh, that's that's why Python gets mentioned a lot. Uh, we have sort of expanded our scope uh, to R as well. And so the first two languages on Azure Notebooks were Python and R. And we recently, in the past month, added F Sharp. Uh, so the F Sharp team came to us, uh, particularly Don Syme, who's uh, a well-known person in the F Sharp community at this point. Uh, he came to us and said, I'd really like to see our stuff on Azure Notebooks. They had a thing called tryfsharp.com, uh, uh, and they wanted to do something better, basically. They didn't want to keep maintaining it, and they thought our thing looked like sort of a nice opportunity. And, and so we sort of sort of started working together with that on the side, and it turns out they are some of the best people I've ever worked with, and they have a really good community. So I've, I've done very little with the F-Sharp community, but I've been extremely surprised. Uh, they, they helped us get this up and running in Azure Notebooks in about two weeks. Uh, they dedicated a bunch of their time to fixing things uh, in what we call kernels. So a kernel is uh, the thing in a Jupyter Notebook that allows you to run a programming language. And so it's this uh, interop layer between the programming language itself and its interpreter and Jupyter. 
And so they'd spent a bunch of time making that work and making IntelliSense work really well in there. Uh, and we got it up and running, and, and it's, it's went pretty well. So uh, like last, last week, they uh, posted about F-sharp new features, and they, they called out our service so people would start using it. And that's been pretty great. Uh, but that's our first foray into non-Python in our languages. Uh, and the, the, the sort of back of, uh, back of the mind question then is, so what about you know, VB, what about C-sharp, right? We're, we're Microsoft, the Rosalind C-sharp team sits about 10 doors behind me in my office here. Uh, and I, I've, I've weirdly enough heard that question, um, like why isn't C-sharp <laughs> on here? Uh, you already have F-sharp, so .NET obviously works, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of a layered question. So the reason we haven't done C-sharp yet is, firstly, we haven't had customers ask for it. Uh, and once customers start asking for things, that obviously sort of can, bumps Can I get C-sharp support? <laughs> We're gonna, yeah, now we, now we have the counter started. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's the thing, right? So like, uh, we, our team is also sort of uh, known for getting all sorts of requests, right? And so then you have to start going, well, is that a request because you know they want a cornucopia of stuff, or is it because they actually want an apple, <laughs> like, and they're going to use the apple? Uh, yeah. And so you know, in this case, C sharp is that apple, right? Of course, it'd be great to have one, but are you going to use it, or am I going to spend a bunch of time making this thing uh, that that really just sounds nice? Uh, and F sharp is very data based, and so it was a really good fit uh, alongside our other languages. So it's a really good starting point. Uh, and so that, that's, that's one problem, right, is that we need a strong case. Uh, we also don't know the state of, uh, state of C-sharp's kernel. And so a kernel has to be maintained, and because the F-sharp team took such a strong initiative to, to fix that up, it was very easy for us to, to do this. Uh, our team is working on Azure Notebooks. There's four of us in total. And so to support each of these languages is a really big tax on our team and stops us from doing a lot of other cool things. And so if we can get assistance from other people at Microsoft or just the community in general that want to help support these things, uh, we can we can do a lot more. And so we just haven't had sort of the buy-in from the C-sharp side yet. Uh, but once those things happen, yeah, I very much expect C-sharp to come. It's just a matter of uh, getting getting people to want, want it <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, be that in pe people working on the kernel and customers. And so we just haven't seen that, that trend yet. But uh, for anyone watching this, if you want to, want to say something about that, we have a, a GitHub repo, github.com slash Microsoft slash Azure Notebooks, file an issue, ask for C Sharp, get your friends to plus one it. And uh, if enough of you do that, something tells me the powers that be will make it happen. So Okay. And what about uh, JavaScript TypeScript? Yeah, there's really no thought to do JavaScript yet, uh, though it would fall into the same bucket. Uh, we haven't really even talked about it. Uh, there are JavaScript kernels already uh, open sourced. To my knowledge, there are not TypeScript ones. But again, we could also do that. That would be very much based on on customer feedback. Uh, we're we're really at the end of the day, our, our our job is to to make customers happy and give them the things they need. And so, um, obviously, based on what customers ask for, we will will prioritize different languages. And some other ones come up, right? So um, another big one, Julia, uh, OCaml has come up. Um, those are the big two. Okay. For some reason, OCaml. OCaml hit like a hot spot last week where a few people, um, sometimes you get these plus one things right, where someone asks for it and then it's like, oh, me too. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of waiting for Rust. Like, when does that come along? And no one's asking for Haskell yet. I was going to say, and Go and yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all these other things. How about Perl? No. <laughs> uh, so un under the hood, uh, what I'm kind of curious about too is how you actually create like an environment or a session. I don't know what you call it. How do you actually create that for each notebook? Because it... It's kind of interesting because like I open a notebook and like the, the results are there. If I change something down here, I can sort of re-execute that step. Like what, what, what kind of magic is going on there? 
Sure. Uh, there's, a, there's a few layers. I'll, I'll start at the top and then we can go a little deeper. So the, the top level of magic is Jupiter itself uh, runs these kernels. And a kernel, as said, interacts with, um, I'm going to call it an interpreter. That's not strictly true for all languages. Uh, you know, compiled languages, it gets a little odder. But mm -hmm. things like Python and R uh, run an interpreter, and F Sharp also has an interactive interpreter. And so as you execute things, uh, let's say A equals 2, which is, works in pretty much every language, if I look for a later, it will still equal two. Yeah, and and that that is purely because the running state of that interpreter is being kept alive under the covers, and so that's all getting stored. It's getting executed against a kernel and then stored. That's the that's that's why Jupiter works, and that's the magic there. The next level of magic is that you're running inside a container on on some VMs that we own, and each of those VMs runs a Jupiter instance that you're logged into, and that's maintaining a different set of state. Uh, and we maintain the storage, as I said, but that's that's a little less interesting. Uh, from sort of the, the other side, looking from the architecture, is our service is made up of uh, an ASP.NET website uh, that, that you log into, and then it runs through a proxy that puts you onto these VMs, and these VMs allow you to run Jupyter. And it's all running Linux. Uh, it's actually not Windows once you're off the website. Uh, it, that was a choice not made because we're Microsoft pretty clearly, uh, but because that's where customers were doing their work. Mm -hmm. So most of the data science packages people rely on are tested mostly on Linux. Uh, we know they work there, and so we didn't want to sort of uh, shake the earth just for the sake of doing it. So yeah. we're running on Linux, and we're running with, uh, uh, for Python specifically, we're using a thing called Anaconda, which is a Python distribution that has a bunch of these libraries preloaded and made sure to work with each other. And with R, we're using sort of the, the open source R right now, it's called Cran R, uh, but eventually we plan to have Microsoft R, and then we also have F-sharp, which is F-sharp. Um, it's not, not as confusing as these other things. But that's, that's the architecture, is at the end of the day, uh, you should expect to be able to do whatever you could do on a Linux VM running Jupyter yourself on our service uh, with, a, with a few extra restrictions. Uh, we don't let you go to any public website, for instance. Uh, because of concerns for malicious users. So we maintain a list of known good sites, uh, and we expand that as necessary to expand for more known good sites. Yeah. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah. As, as somebody who's not really into data science professionally, um, you, you know, I hear Python and R, and I immediately think of machine learning. You know, how does this work with something like Azure ML, since it does have... Uh, you can expose uh, Azure ML through webhooks. So it works really well with Azure ML. So uh, most of the stuff we do with Azure ML is in Python or R. Uh, my experience is, uh, as I said, my, my leaning is towards Python. So through Python, there's an Azure ML SDK. Uh, our team authored the, the first version of that, and there's since been other people also helping us take care of it. But in Python, uh, you can use things called decorators on methods to just say, this is going to be an Azure ML function, please publish it and include your API key and your workspace ID, and it will publish to Azure ML. Uh, if you wanted to use this in the best way for Azure ML, I would suggest going to studio.azureml.net. Uh, within there, there's a notebooks tab. It uses the same underlying technology. But the beauty of that is because you're in Azure ML, uh, there's a, a better connection to your Azure ML credentials. And so it makes it even easier to use Azure ML. And so on our service, you would have to tell us your workspace ID because we don't know it. Uh, we're not within the Azure ML Studio. But if you use notebooks from there, it automatically knows 
what workspace you're in, what your IDs are, and so you don't have to even you know look up these these magical strings that give you access, right? And so it, it works really well for that. Uh, the only thing that that I think makes it difficult is some machine learning takes a really long time, and because it's a web-based experience, if if it, you're doing something really long, you kind of have to keep your browser open, <laughs> which which turns out to be hard for some people if you know you're bopping between meeting rooms and shutting your laptop and going to go over here and do this thing. Uh, we don't we don't just leave your stuff running indefinitely once you uh, once you exit your your browser session. We assume you're gone, and so we start cleaning up resources for other people to use them. Uh, okay. That's cool. So that's that's the only yeah it's it's a cool thing from an architecture side it's actually a really fun problem to solve is how to sort of know when someone's gone and and not do that too soon uh, yeah because then you start upsetting people but not take too long because then you're just letting stuff sit idle in the background but yeah yeah it's really cool it's really uh, it's really was meant originally for ML uh, and it works well with that but our hope was to go beyond ML and, and go to instead uh, for instance working with universities and so we've started doing stuff with a few different universities. Uh, Cambridge just used our product to uh, teach a, an intro to, well, an intro course. I think it was an intro to data science course uh, for for us a quarter uh, at their school, and it by and large went went very well. And we, we got some good feedback from them. Uh, we found some bugs that we otherwise wouldn't have found uh, thanks to having. Uh, put what we call a variable workload. Uh, it turns out you, you don't think about this when you're in college or out of it, but it, it definitely happens that everyone decides to do their homework on the same night. Uh, judging by our data, it shows that the night before is very popular, uh, and even for those kids at Cambridge. So yeah. uh, we, we got some internet hugs from them, as I, I tend to call it, and uh, we, we found some interesting problems. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what we're hoping to do, is sort of have, have this also for that, and for the people that aren't uh, already very knowledgeable about Python or F Sharp or R or how to program at all, right? And that we can make a service that would be approachable by them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this seems great for education. I mean, if I was doing a presentation, being able to kind of step through and like you know show some text, then run a snippet of code, show some text that that seems that that seems like there's really great alignment there. Um, so I you know I work a lot with other Azure services. So does this integrate with anything else, or or how does that work? I mean, do I do I basically have to use whatever client libraries there are, and and just and and just go that route? Is there are there any tighter integrations? Like, what does that whole story look like? So for the most part, you're going to rely on uh, the SDKs, the client libraries within okay. whatever language you're using. Uh, there is hope for us to sort of more directly couple some things and do that for you, but our approach so far has been mostly to be hands-off, right? And to give you an environment where you can use that language, not to sort of, uh, I said, lock you in, right? So features that are helping you get SQL stuff down only in our platform doesn't make it very easy for you to take that that workload elsewhere right, if you right. want to or run it locally. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a few things like that we've looked into doing, uh, particularly so I bring up SQL, right? The idea of having maybe a SQL data bar that uh, would help you write the connection string and maybe fill in the code for you. Uh, a lot of people, it's confusing. Uh, SQL connection strings are, and they're not too bad, but there are a few different settings, and it's not that hard to make a mistake. And and then you're you're getting this odd error about how you can't connect, and just looking at you know this thousand character thing, hoping to figure out where you typoed. So uh, we could improve that, but yeah, for the most part, uh, the goal was to not to not make an environment that's you know, bespoke and hard to get in and out of, but instead make an environment that allows you to to come to things that are written in in some programming language with some instructions to execute them to learn and to re-execute yeah the connection string thing actually brings up a, a good question is is there a 
secret place where you can store those connection strings so that they're not in my public notebook? So today there's not. So okay. that's that's one of the uh, I guess the the gotchas right now, and why why if we're focusing also on education and not enterprise. Uh, enterprises often have some very um, secret information that mm-hmm. um, I, I usually I usually say sort of it's it's valuable information, and in very much the traditional sense of it has a dollar value associated with it. That's yeah. why they're in business, and so uh, right now everything is public on, on Azure Notebooks. So if you make a notebook, someone else can look. It up. They can they can read it. They can execute it. Uh, and for education and, and for experimentation and blog sharing and all that, that's fine. But the second you start to get into enterprises, that gets a little more challenging. So we are working on features right now that will privatize data, will allow uh, a more complex sharing model. Uh, we're still very much in the planning stages of that, um, and we're we're hoping to lean on um, some experts at Microsoft. And so we've been talking with some of the people at at OneDrive since they. They have a bit of bit of knowledge about how to share information safely and in sort of a convenient way for users. Uh, so we're working with them, and we're going to find the right model before we just sort of throw something up there to block everyone out, um, mm-hmm. which is is it's kind of hard to hold back. So as a dev, we've had a lot of people ask for like, well, I want I want a private library, and I'd love to give you a private library, and I, I thought about doing it, and then our PMs come in my office and say, no, stop, stop, stop. We need to like actually think about what that means before we just do it. Um, and so the hope is to not just get you a private library, but you a private library that makes sense that, um, for, hand, for for example, right, Carl could make a library and choose to share it just with Jason and not with me. Yeah. Uh, and that, that model is, is is not trivial. And so we're, we're really working to make sure we make the right calls first and don't just make something and, and then pull the rug out for you again later um, <laughs> when we find out we did the wrong thing. Okay. So... so- you know, you, you talked a lot about educational uses for this. Are there any thoughts about integrating with something like OneNote, which is a really great tool in the educational world? There's there's a lot of talks about that. Yeah, and we, we were talking with the OneNote team last month about how could we sort of integrate with them. Uh, again, we come back to kind of fun challenges because Jupyter's model is very much linear. It's this cell-by-cell-by-cell execution, and OneNote is sort of by design nonlinear, mm-hmm. uh, even though most of us most of the time probably just use it in a very linear yeah. fashion. Um, yeah, you realize that when you start working with their object model that, that, you know, if you type something in the title and then you happen to click there again, but if you click in a certain way and you type, it's actually a different text block. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's, it's, it's really useful in terms of like meeting notes. And we yeah. use that, uh, we use that a lot on, on our team for like, if you have a, a document and you need notes alongside, we'll make these notes in these different blocks along the side, but it doesn't really map very well to the, uh, the code aspect Our code is very linear in the way it's designed, uh, it, it runs one after another, bases itself on stored results. And so uh, this sort of nonlinear uh, workspace makes that a little difficult. And uh, But there's there's thoughts that, well, couldn't we do it within like a single one of those sections on the page? And so we, we've been talking to them about how to do that. The uh, At the end of the day, what we, we are thinking that'll probably be, though, is you'll end up with an Azure notebook that happens to be inside a OneNote page, right? Is uh, some sort of, uh, you mentioned earlier, like maybe I could put this in an iframe in my blog. Yeah. It's kind of the same equivalent within OneNote as maybe you'd have the uh, the iframe of, of OneNote yeah. uh, on that page and you could execute your code. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's very much an interesting angle that we've been looking at. Okay. Um, are there any future plans that are sort of, you know, very likely to happen that you want to talk about? Yeah, there's, there's a few. Uh, we're looking right now at uh, I said things like OneNote, things like uh, being able to host things on a blog and runnable, runnable docs. Those are very dreamy features, more landed ones that we're 
likely to see in the next three months, uh, seeing tighter integrations with GitHub, uh, especially in terms of being able to get an initial set of notebooks from GitHub. So there's a lot of data scientists already that have created these uh, courses of many Jupyter Notebooks. And it would be nice to have a way that would make it easy for people to pull those into our environment. So that's, that's one feature. Uh, another feature that we're looking at is improving your ability to store CSVs in our system. Uh, when we started sort of to scope our, our problem down, we only stored the notebook files themselves. Uh, and you would pull down your data whenever you needed it. The hope is in the future here, we'll start hosting some of that data for you, both for speed reasons as well as convenience. That way you're not constantly having to re-download some file every time you come back. Right. Uh, and those are, those are the, the big things. There's also some work ongoing right now. We're trying to find a, a better model for uh, users to find each other on the site. And so right now, the only way to find things is by getting a link to a library. Uh, the hope in the future is that you will be able to look up a specific user and see all of their libraries, all of the notebooks they wanted to share with you. Uh, sort of going back to like GitHub. And GitHub, you look up a user, you can find all of the stuff they work on. And we're trying to sort of do the same thing in our system. And so those are, those are the big things right now that are coming in, I think, in terms of uh, sort of changing what the users currently get. Uh, but there's, it, it's, it's really hard to predict, right? That's the fun thing about being on uh, such a new product is there's there's sort of every week there's some new thing we decide to do yeah uh, and you know a month or three after that we usually tend to get it out there yeah I uh, earlier you had mentioned a, a story about finding enough resources for this other team to you know you know hit their compute on because they were really taxing your system and that made me search your facts and I noticed that this is all free so we we can run this all on Microsoft's bill. Yeah, you know, I uh, I get the bill monthly, and I get to defend our usage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that job. has to be a fun job. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's really it's been good. Like my, my management team has been very good about. Uh, they'll ask questions about it, but once I sort of describe what the bill is, they're like, "Oh, okay, that's reasonable." Um, it's it's not it's not beyond the tens of thousands of dollars yet, so no one is you know hunting for me yet. Uh, but so far, yeah, we want to give it away for free. We just want people to be able to use it. Uh, we do have thoughts about ways we might be able to start charging for certain usage, uh, particularly around um, giving things like custom VMs. So right now, you can't control the size of your VM. You can't control uh, a lot about it, right? We give you this this workspace, and you get you get it. That's what you get. Uh, if you wanted to maybe think think down the road and this this might be a year off again we haven't really talked about it too much uh and in terms of when we're going to plug it in but wouldn't it be nice if we could give you a dedicated gpu based vm with a solid state drive and you know 128 gigabytes of memory but uh we don't want to pay for that <laughs> that's going to yeah. get really expensive for our team but if you want to pay for it, we'd like to bring the ability for users to say, no, I really do want a super high power machine for the next hour, uh, and then sort of use uh, Azure and let them use their Azure account to provision that, and then use that as their backend. Uh, and that there are there are asks for them. Uh, I kind of alluded to this earlier with the CTK people when they came to us and sort of saying, uh, we need GPU usage, and and it wasn't just you know could you give it to us, but it really was like. But really, we'll, we'll pay for it. Uh, can yeah. you give us a way to pay for it? Uh, and so that's kind of what we're looking at is... We don't have time so for that. Right, right, yeah. We're too busy uh, to take your money. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's actually the sad thing, right? Is yeah. that we've really been prioritizing this free usage, uh, not this paid usage. Uh, and so and in some ways, that does make uh, our management a little more uneasy. Uh, you, can, <laughs> you can guess that they, they'd rather us try to make money. But uh, our primary focus was getting users and... and 
giving them something they could use and not finding a way to, to take their money from them. And so, yeah, no, I often have sort of the image of, you know, Fry from Futurama holding his cash at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> awesome. And so we'll figure it out. We'll figure out a way to uh, sort of give you a way to hopefully get better VMs. And we expect that, that the users will end up paying for that. But that's, that's the way that we're going to make, make money. It's not by just extorting every single person that comes to use this, probably. Uh, because, I mean, honestly, uh, when it comes to things like education, uh, and, and individual students, that gets a little more complicated. Mm -hmm. But most of them, they don't need uh, a huge VM. But these real data scientists that are machine learning across a terabyte of customer data, yeah, they do. They really yeah. do want it, and uh, and most of them are more than happy to to pay their Azure bill if you let them. So. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention before we move on? Uh, no, that's that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm happy you guys had a chance to talk to us. I'm happy you saw the Hacker News stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, you guys get some questions and. And I'll be happy to, to respond to any of them and sort of answer anything we, we glossed over. Okay. Carl, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? I was using VS Code uh, earlier today and uh, trying to compare a SQL query that I had written with one that somebody else had written. I had them both open in VS Code. I'm like, there's got to be a way built into VS Code to compare these. Um and, and there is, if you have these files and they're saved on your disk, you can actually right click the name of the file and you can start a compare and then you right click the name of the other file and it'll say compare to the other file. And that works great. But in my solution, I wasn't seeing these and that's because I had just copied and pasted these in without save, saving them. So if you want to do something similar, you have to have these files saved to disk. There is an open issue on VS Code GitHub issues list. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. For those of you who might just want to do like I did doing a quick compare. Yeah, that'd be a uh, cool it's, feature. It's, but it is really cool to do a quick and, and easy uh, compare between the two files. And it actually worked once I just hit save on my files. Okay, very cool. Uh, Chris, we play a game on the show. It's pretty easy. What the, what I need you to do is pick a, a number between one and four inclusive and let me know which number you picked. Three. Three, okay. Would you rather stub your toe badly or have an ice cream headache for one half hour? Yeah, I'll take the stub toe. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a hard Yeah, I do that all the time. So <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, ice cream headaches are pretty nasty for like two seconds. Um, yeah, if you have it for a half hour, that would be that would be horrible. That that's That'd like the worst bad. way to die, yeah. Uh Carl, pick a number. I'll take number three. Number three. That's what he picked. Now I gotta go okay, to I'll take number two then. Okay, number two. <laughs> Otherwise, I gotta take out yet another card. Would you rather lick 1,000 stamps or read out loud all the last names that start with an A in the phone book? This one's getting easier. Uh, yeah, that one's getting easier because of the <laughs> phone book. Um, and, and you actually don't lick stamps anymore. They, they come, yeah. like you just peel them off and you stick them on. It's not like the day. I remember actually enjoying licking a stamp. It kind of tasted good. So I either one of those actually would be bad. Yeah. You know, maybe I'll do them both. Yeah. yeah no, the only the only thing you lick anymore are the like the bad uh, business return envelopes, right? Like yeah. uh, like anytime I get those from your ins your insurance company or whatever, like State Farms and do things like I have to lick this envelope. Because even the ones you buy are, are like the peel off now. I'm just thinking how weird it is now to sell a product where 
it's like not something you eat, but it's like, please lick this to activate. <laughs> you buy that new, you know, that new surface book and it's like, oh, you know, to open the lid, you need to lick it or something. So that's the new fingerprint, right? We're not going to use a fingerprint scanner. Yeah. Just, just, just lick the surface. Actually, speaking of Futurama, they did that, right? He, uh, um, he, he had the, the, to open the one door he had to, he had the biometric security was a kiss <laughs> and it was like, you know, checking out his lip movements. But uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, so, Chris, uh, where can people find you? Uh, on the internet, or yeah, on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What is your oh home God. address for everybody? Yeah, this is a, this is a, this is getting a bit weird. Um, it's, on the, it's on the internet. I'm on Twitter. I'm okay. uh, I'm Chris Wilcox forty seven on Twitter. Uh, I am on GitHub as CR Wilcox. And if you look up Python engineering at Microsoft, you'll find my team's blog, and where you can probably find me and most of my team members and the stuff we're up to. Okay, awesome. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And I'm Jason. You can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Chris, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about Azure Notebooks. This is this is cool stuff, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what you guys come out with next. Awesome. Thanks, Jason and Carl.